0: Hello, thank you so much for tuning in to episode two of What's Queer Here. So the August fringe has begun and uh, it's all descended into a bit of madness. I have maybe had about four breakdowns and we're on, we're on day four. So that's one a day, which is fabulous. Better than last year. Cags has escaped the country to Egypt and is just hiding out from all this fucking madness. Um, we are super excited to release this episode, We got to go to Lighthouse Books on Nicholson Street, um, which is not just a bookshop. It's also a social space, a community hub, um, a place for people of all marginalized identities to feel safe and to organize. It is an activist, radical, socially conscious um, collective, if you like, of really amazing and inspiring individuals who are doing great work. I will pop a ton of links so you can look them up in the uh, description of this episode. We chat a little bit with Myri about what queer means to us, queer writing, queer reading, some gay firsts, some things that we remember. Uh, I chat a little bit about smuggling lesbian erotica in my youth because clearly my childhood wasn't strange enough. Um, About halfway through we will have a little break and I will tell you about the last time that I pissed myself, so that's fabulous. And also, please do let us know if you would like some merchandise and some stickers, because we ordered far too many. Tell us what you liked. Also, tell us if you hate it. Humiliation really turns me on. Either way, cue the music. We're sitting on a field in the Cotswolds
1: and in them you should choose me
0: you should choose okay me. so can you describe lighthouse books in five me. words this is a hard one
1: um yeah and i've cheated because i've picked words with dashes <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start with enthusiastic uh socially conscious it's one word mm-hmm. uh community-led uh, multicultural and inclusive. Mm. Hmm. Those are pretty good. What about, what do you mean by enthusiastic? Um, it was a toss-up between that and optimistic. Mm. And uh, and I, I'm just not having a particularly optimistic day. So enthusiastic won. Mm-hmm. That's um, very fair. I think that the whole team, all of the booksellers, are excited about books, one, mm. and then excited about this world that we are hopefully contributing towards building and making better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone kind of throws themselves into that 100%. Whether that's, like, angry is a very negative word.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're Passionate, really... potentially.
2: Because enthusiasm to me sounds like optimistic passion,
0: kind of. Yeah. But I think that there's a really big value in that enthusiasm. Yeah. I think a lot of people can be quite defeatist sometimes, especially yeah. when yeah. it comes to politics right now. Yeah,
2: or I, always, honestly. Like, mm, I don't think yeah. there's been a time where anybody was like, oh, "I love what's happening in politics right now," yeah. unless potentially you're like the prime minister or like
0: not affected. <laughs> by I think any even Theresa May
2: was having a hard one with it most <laughs> of the time, <laughs> like ninety <laughs> percent of the time.
0: <laughs> no, I I think that that sums you up pretty damn well, to be fair. Um, and I, I like that community led is in there because mm. I really feel that that's a big standout point for this bookshop. So where I'm from down south. There is nothing like this, and okay. I live in quite a small town. But Oxford is my closest city, okay. and still in Oxford, there was nothing like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and I know that that's probably because my town where I came from was quite, relatively, quite a poor town, and Oxford is our nearest mm-hmm. city, but it was pretty mm-hmm. like, I don't want to say bougie, but it was it was like bougie. Wow. Well, it's <laughs> yeah. <awkward. laughs> yeah. And so I, I, there wasn't really a space that was taking risks, which I think Lighthouse Books does do. Hopefully.
1: I think we're very much a community bookshop, and I think sometimes I think a lot of independent bookshops are community bookshops because Mm. it's 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 vital to our survival if we don't reflect the people who are living on the streets around us, who visit Mm. us, then Mm who who will come in and make sure you can keep the lights on. Um, So I think a lot of independent bookshops end up being community bookshops Mm -hmm. by by very virtue of what we're doing. But I think community led is slightly different in as much as we are ever evolving. And I think it is about taking risks, but it's also about being responsive. So when, um, you know, the stim toys that you're using, like that was somebody who came in and said, like, I love being in here and I end up spending a lot of time here. And when I finish my cup of tea, I don't really know what to do with myself. And, and I worry that I'm damaging the books and I always forget my stim toys. Um, and then we have staff who are autistic and they were like, STEM toys, let's oh, have yeah. some of those.
0: For, <laughs> um, for reference, I'm playing with a bright yellow foam banana. And I'm playing with bright yellow Play-Doh. <laughs> Which, if anything, at least we're matching. Yeah, we are, we are. It's, yeah. I, I do think that's a really good thing though. And I think, I think that um, a lot of places and businesses particularly don't think about
1: these things. I think it's also that people have a blind spot, and um, I'll admit I never looked at the city that is Edinburgh as a wheelchair user until my sister was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, I It hadn't been significant to me in places that I'd worked before, whether or not we were wheelchair accessible, mm-hmm. um, which is a horrible thing to say. It, it just wasn't on my radar, and I think it's important that those of us who then become aware of... Barriers to access and to enjoyment, because it's not just about being able to enter a space. It's then whether or not you feel that space is welcoming to you, wants you to be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think it's beholden on those of us who, as we become aware of more things, then let other people know. Yeah, I think um, I think
2: that's very true. Um, it, it's it's very honest to admit that there are obviously things that you've done wrong or you things you were not aware of before, and I think that's like one of the most powerful things that we can do as obviously, you know, we're, we're privileged in certain aspects and then obviously we, we lack privilege in others, but mm-hmm. the, the, we're not, we're not going to be perfect ever. So it's almost better, you know, instead of acting as if we're all like woke allies, whatever, mm-hmm. um, better just, just to admit we are doing it wrong and it's okay. And like we're learning,
1: um, I think it's about the learning and yeah. I, I think crucial to that is, is if you are in a position of privilege, Um, I don't think anyone who has less privilege particularly wants to hear you fall on your sword Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, I I get it. I could be so much better. Mm -hmm. Like, just be better. Do better. Um, But I do think that it's more for other people who might be getting it wrong Mm -hmm. um, to feel like it really is as simple as then acting on it. Um, And I think that the more we have responded, the more people have come in and said, well, actually, can you do this? Or... We had an event with an amazing writer and disability activist last Friday, last week, um, called San Allen, and they're based in Glasgow, and they, a couple of years ago, had said to us, like, I'm not interested in being part in, I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember the email (laughs) exactly from two years ago, but basically, (laughs) "Um, I'm not interested, I have limited amount of time and limited amounts of energy they have a chronic Mm. illness so i'm not interested in being on any panels that are all white all cis um all straight or any combination of those and you know it's their job to get their work out there but for them that was something that they weren't willing to sacrifice it was if you're not fully wheelchair accessible if you don't have a bsl interpreter if your panel is all white middle class and straight or all white middle class and gay it's not where I want to be and that really changed our perspective on things
2: yeah to do so coming back to what you were saying about this being a community bookshop which obviously we love um how would you define that community just because I feel like um there's that conversation of you know we are right by the university mm-hmm. and university students some or at least most of them are only here for a certain period of time mm-hmm. and um things that kind of cater to students a lot of time then don't cater to the community So I was just wondering how you define the community that you believe this bookshop is like built by and for and what is it about it that caters to both students and non-students?
1: So you know luckily is a space we're a bookshop so our common thread is readers. Yeah. People from all walks of life and interest and class and race read Um, and if we can reflect on the interests and the voices of the people we think might want to see themselves in our books, then they will find us. So I think that by having a much more inclusive range, that's much more reflective of our actual population—be that, you know, queer voices, um, women, people of color, um, working-class voices—by simply having those and mm-hmm. having them prominently displayed. So. Our community is very much made up of readers from lots of different walks of life. Mm -hmm. We're lucky both to be close to the university and the academic community wider Mm -hmm. than just students or um, professors. There's Mm -hmm. all the support staff um, who works, you know, locally. We're also in a bit of the city where lots of other things are happening because there is the money that is generated by university campus Mm -hmm. and those people read we have a lot of people who are at the university and a lot of students who you know the university provides us with a pool of people who have a disposable income um that allows us to support and offer a space to a lot of people who don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have that so they fill the coffers a little bit to give us the buffer to keep the lights on so we can take risks on other
0: things Quick question for for reference is when when did you start working with what is now Lighthouse? So by
1: way of journey, I first met Elaine about 12, 13 years ago. And Elaine owned WordPower and worked here with um, her partner, Tarlo Chin. She was looking to retire and was looking to sell up quite quickly. And I was working in a bookshop um in scotland and because i used to shop here and come in quite regularly uh she asked me
0: does that mean that when you retire you'll ask me to... <laughs> <laughs> is that how it works down the chain <laughs> yeah well i think i mean i think a lot of independent
1: bookshops close mm. because you know an older generation retires and there's nobody yeah. out there who wants and you have to, to renew the
0: ideas right and keep them all yeah. fresh and and yeah is only natural for a bookshop that wants to be kind of radical and progressive to keep refreshing its staff base, but also the kinds of books that it stocks yeah. and thinking about. Well, I think that kind Elaine of thing.
1: was very, you know, we're we're quite a different bookshop to word power. Mm-hmm. Um and I think very early on, um, I had decided that politically speaking, I was more comfortable fighting for what I believe in than fighting against what I reject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so I wanted a space that had fewer posters that were about down with X, Y, or Z, yeah. and mm. more um, of a space that spoke to what we can do, what yeah. is being done, people who are doing it. Who? Yeah. So that was an immediate pivot. Um, accessibility was an immediate pivot. I, the idea of having a shop that my sister couldn't come into, you know, was ridiculous to me. Yeah. So quite early on, we got the ramp and seating then came very quickly as well.
0: I think yeah. even, even physically for a, for a small space as well, like the amount that, not a small space, but relatively a small space compared to sort of like if you go into a high street chain yeah. or a larger bookstore, Lighthouse gets a huge variety of books in terms of the subjects that you cover and the different things that you explore and yeah. genres and stuff. Well, that's the freedom that comes from saying there are some people we just don't need to stock.
1: That's true. <laughs> yeah. So once you pull out the classics... Um, You have a lot more room. Mm, You know, Mm. we don't have to give up a whole shelf for Dickens.
0: It's not to say Dickens isn't just fine.
1: It's just you can find them at Blackwell's
0: down there. My dad will hate this, but I don't like Dickens, so... Uh, I don't like
1: Dickens either. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Not for For, uh, everyone. Not for
0: him. No, Um, not for me.
1: But yeah, it's like, you know, that would be a shelf. We Mm. would give up a whole shelf if we were going to have all of Dickens. And when you remove... When you put that space back into place, suddenly you can say, like, right, who are the most exciting women writing science fiction in sub-Saharan Africa right now? Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, oh, shit, there's a whole world of people.
0: So mm. thinking of what you're reading, no pressure, mm. what is your favourite queer book?
1: That was the impossible question you sent me. Yeah. Um, so Kirsty Logan's The Rental Heart is um, everything that I love uh, it is a slightly sinister, feminist, queer retelling of traditional folk tales and fairy tales. Oh, and that
2: sounds so good. I
0: love fairy tales.
1: They Sorry. are, yeah. <laughs> and you can, what you, what you get is like the hint
0: of mm. the fairy tale that once is it, was. Is it like a modern, better Angela Carter, like in terms of the bloody chamber? Um... Because it's the vibe that I'm getting from what you're saying, but I, I, know I, mean, that I yeah. already know I mean, that I'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think
1: you can't talk feminist fairy tales and not have Angela Carter in the mix. Yeah. But I think what Kirsty's doing is very distinct and original and uh-huh. very reflective of her uh-huh. as a Scottish writer. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. that lilt in the tone. There's a joy and a relish in what she's writing. Um, and she wrote it very young, and I think that it's raw in that way she's evolved as a writer since then so it's a perfect book to start Kirsty with because then you get to to evolve with her as a, as a writer um you know it's like a box of chocolates so you can because they're short stories you can go back and just mm. savor any one of them and do you stock it um, here yes there you go yes always mm. always have all of Kirsty. Um, and then the other one I would say I mean I only read it a month ago so Mm. you know it has that fresh book feel, that fresh love that's on the surface um, which is Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardina Burstow Mm -hmm. and it is unspeakably good it's just this extraordinary tapestry of what Britain is um, through the voices and experiences mostly of um, Mostly of women, mostly of black women, mostly of queer black women, um, through the last hundred and whatever years, and it's rural, it's city, it's you get these little snap portraits of people. It's it's fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah.
0: There awesome. are also yeah. some canonical queer books though that I just don't rate, but queer books in general as soon as I started reading queer books I was like well I'm never looking back unless I'm reading something that's slightly more non-fictional because it just it felt I for once was consistently reading books that I read and you know when you're reading something and you get this indescribable feeling within you of really like you're there and whether you're in the book or in yourself, you're not sure, mm-hmm. but you're just really like alive. And that sounds really, sounds yeah. really lame, yeah. Yeah. but that's definitely how I felt the first time I started really reading queer fiction. Yeah. And actually some other non-queer fiction, things like The Bell Jar, which was one of the mm-hmm. like the books, the first serious books that I read when I was very mm-hmm. young. My dad probably should not have let me read it when I was <laughs> that old. Um, but books like that that really bring a, re- a visceral mm-hmm. reaction yeah. in you. Yeah,
1: personally there are those books that seem to rearrange the way your cells are in your body and Mm. when you have read them you are physically, mentally, structurally a different human to who Mm -hmm. you were before. Mm -hmm. You can't unread them, Mm -hmm. unthink them Mm -hmm. whether you like them or didn't they just kind of twist that Mm -hmm. thing in you And and I found that especially with queer books you read them and you're like something clicks into place and and what are they called the things? Rubik's Cube? Rubik's Cube. <laughs> the Rubik's Cube of like, you reach the end of your life and all the sides uh-huh. have gone the right colour. And it just takes different moments in your life to sort of click something. And once it's turned, it's turned. And you know you've got that in your sort of bank. And like, Kirstie Logan was one of those for me. Orlando was one of those for me. Um,
0: and or like, I couldn't call the bookshop Orlando. Um, So we (laughs) called it Lighthouse. (laughs) Mm -hmm. My answer to this question would be, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette or Actually, anything by (laughs) Jeanette Winderson. I'm literally in love with her. Or Girl Meets Boy by Ali Smith, um, which are two books that to me have queer plots. They actually examine a lot of um, different political stances. Um, that talk a lot about identity and growing and coming into your own as a queer person. Mm -hmm. So that was why I chose those two, not just because they spoke to me as a queer person and they spoke to like, not that I have like an inherent, it's not like my left arm is gay and Mm -hmm. like whenever I read a gay book, it's like, oh. (laughs) But it like it spoke to a part of me that kind of uh, felt very like at home within Mm -hmm. those voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. There are some books that are more subtly queer that I have loved, Um, Swimming Home, Yeah. Um, and hot milk as well. Yeah. Um, some maybe like slightly less clever books, like *The Girls* by Emma Klein. Okay. Um, I kind of like liked, but not didn't really impact me. Yeah. Um, but there are also a lot of books that, because then the next question that I wanted to ask you was whether you remember your first queer book and if so, what it was. And we kind of talked a little bit about how Mm. sometimes it's not actually a queer book. Yeah. You're reading queerness into. A book that's, I don't know, not queer, um, <laughs> or not like for that audience, yeah. mm-hmm. and I, I, you had a really interesting sort of response.
2: <laughs> I guess queer washing,
0: queer washing, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is
2: but we should all do. Yeah, no. it's
0: much better than the other ones.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the book that that I, I brought up because I did have to stop and think about it, and I was like, shit, were there any like as a child, um, and it gives me great hope that like now there are mm-hmm. um, you know now the big outrage is like you got there bit, aren't enough in yeah. the middle grade between yeah. 8 and 12 you've you know, got people you know,
0: but... like Rachel Plummer right doing really cool stuff for, for kids so and much
1: cool stuff for young for the people children. now for the, and like for young the adult stuff that just mm. simply wasn't available oh yeah wow it's really like, exploded when I was growing up but Katie Morag by Myrie Hedowick Katie Morag and the two grandmas a picture book about a very city grandma who was very femme and a very country butch grandma who show up and spend the holidays on this island with little katie and i'd always just assumed that they were together and it yeah. was grandma and grandma yeah and it wasn't until years later going back and being so like, you oh. took it
0: for granted that it, it was yeah. i guess yeah which is really impressive almost i think <laughs> yeah i think i think I think when I was younger, actually, like I, I really, it was more that I read books with female protagonists and I mainly read books written by women. Um, and I was more than anything just in love with the female protagonists and in the way that their characters brought, built up and the way that they developed and in knowing them, if that okay. makes any sense. And yeah. I, I don't think I necessarily like looked out a lot of queer content. If I could have, I probably wouldn't have known like where to start anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I really, I think that was something that I really lacked in books. And that's why when I sort of first started finding books that were queer, I was like, well, holy fuck, we're going we're going down this road. Yeah. Um, and sort of like didn't really stop, just kept going. But I think mo- most of the sort of stuff that I consumed that was queer was um, more visual, like TV's, mo- TV okay. series, yeah. movies. When you were a kid. Yeah. I think I just read into a lot of more straight plots. Yeah. A lot of like queer tension. Yeah. And also I think I yeah definitely we talked about it before like that difficulty between knowing whether you like something or want to love it or whether you want yeah. to be it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. 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 What was yours? Well, I mean, so I grew up in Poland, right? Grew up in Poland, Catholic household. um... Don't say the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a lot of sex in the Bible. Yeah. Um. But no I'm, no, I'm no longer religious, but obviously, um, while I was a child, queerness was never something I thought about. Right. Uh, sexuality was never something I thought about. I was watching Polish TV, Polish mm-hmm. cartoons, there was nothing that was queer about any of them. Like, thinking back at it, you know, I did. I did think about it for like a good week or so. Mm-hmm. And I just, I couldn't think of a single thing that was queer mm. in my childhood, honestly. Um, I think the first person, the first, like, peer queer that I met was when I moved to the States eventually, and then in middle school, so I was about 12. And then the first queer book that I read, it wasn't even, like, the storyline wasn't queer, it was more like the author is now believed to be queer, because, like, she lived with her best friend, you know, as as it goes. Right. Uh, um, yeah, Willa Cather, she wrote from a male perspective, so that she could write lovingly about women um yeah and even honestly like at the time I actually read this at school like in my high school and at the time we did talk about that or it wasn't until I read her like this other novel by her the song of the lark that I really saw like uh the language that she used to describe her protagonists which were Mm -hmm. always female Mm -hmm. uh and like the love that she had for them really and the character development that was that was there um and I think For me, it was more about thinking about the relationship of the author to her protagonist Mm -hmm. than between two characters in the novel. Yeah, so... Do you regret that absence, either of you? That's a good question. I I think I do, and it's not something I really think about, but now I have a goddaughter, and I absolutely love her so much. Uh, But her parents are also... I mean, I don't want to say shitty people, but kind of <laughs> shitty people. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm. I'm. She's very intelligent. She's so curious, and I keep getting her all these like queer books, like every queer book that's been translated into Polish. I just like give it to her, <laughs> um, and because she loves to read. So I think that's kind of how. Like that, that's kind of what shows that I actually do miss that presence, because I mm-hmm. clearly think that like you know she's gonna benefit from it, and I'm sure I would have as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I do agree with you in a sense and my dad studied literature in edinburgh and he's a journalist so he was really really into books and to making me read kind of like more serious books and and into challenging me to read different things but at the same time my dad god bless him like he's a he's a cis like heterosexual white man who's like he he doesn't necessarily think think of things through that lens so a lot of the books that i was reading because i was influenced by him would tend to be kind of Bolstering this idea of heteronormativity that I mm-hmm. had. And we talk a lot about how it kind of feels like you've got to a place where you're okay with your identity, and then you realize there's another barrier that maybe you've built up inside you okay. that you have to break down, whether it's about being in relationships with people that actually maybe are more performative or doing things that you are really scared to do because there's something inside you that's fearful that you'll be like shamed. I think mm-hmm. if I'd have started having this content younger, I would have, I would be further along now. But I wouldn't necessarily be a different person because mm-hmm. I think that the person that I'm going to be is like there but you've got to like break down the stuff around it but I think that there was a lot of shame attached to reading mm-hmm. queer fiction mm-hmm. but I remember like like sneaking in like because the only the only thing that I could like that was clearly obviously gay was like erotica so yeah. like sneaking in sneaking home like lesbian erotica and then being like God like someone's gonna catch me and it being like sneaking a shameful home from thing. Where? Wherever I could get my hands on it. No, like I think uh, <laughs> I'm not just like walking through Waterstones, like putting, putting, like putting like books of like titties in my pockets name. But I, I think I would like necessarily just kind of really. It was a shameful thing because I remember kind of like buying books and like do you know the works, the high street chain, and they have like loads of like knockoff like really yeah. kind of crappy like erotica novels. Yeah, and I would just it was like three for a fiver, and I'd be yeah. like, well. 3 that'll keep me going for like a couple weeks or something. <laughs> Just kind of like put them on the counter and there'd always be one in there that's like normal. So like yeah. they wouldn't look at all of the three and they'd all be like vulvas or something. So I remember like sort of sneaking that kind of stuff like home to read it. And then, then that in my mind is now this idea of like that over-sexualization of homosexuality and of like mm-hmm. queer content. Yeah. so I think there's a lot of shame up around that
2: it's interesting that you say that you you found shame in like coming up to the counter I found shame in that I wanted to run to the priest as soon as I oh that's <laughs> as yeah as soon as I would read one, one of those books or like even like have any yeah. Uh, yeah. any thoughts or yeah to the priest I went yeah, yeah.
1: I think it's like I, I mean when I was I'm very lucky uh, in a lot of ways because although my mother grew up very Catholic my mum had left her faith and therefore had left a lot of the baggage of mm. a Catholic life. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was about 13, I came home and and I declared to her, in a st- I, I, I wanted it to be a big thing. And I was like, I am a lesbian. <laughs> and my mother just kind of looked up from whatever she was doing, reading a magazine or whatever uh. and looked at me and she goes, no, honey, you're not. You're bi. And I was like, what is this? Mm. what are you saying? And she Mm. was like, you're definitely bi. And I was like, no, but what is bi? And that Mm. hadn't bi had not Mm. come up. And she was like, that's when you are also, you are attracted to different people and it doesn't matter what their gender is. So it could be a man or it could be a woman. my God, I I wish
0: that someone had said this to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I am by, <laughs> um, and it was one of those like haha uh, like if nobody gives you an option mm-hmm. of course you will figure out for yourself over time uh-huh. what yeah. you know what fits you but when you do bypass I think a lot of pain and torture and loneliness mm. and self-doubt when you know that it's even there yeah to explore it so you can mm-hmm. try on the shoe and it'll be like no, that one's not me
0: yeah, that one's not me
1: I'm and okay shame me. is
0: such a big such a heavy feeling Mm. it's very different from like guilt when you've done something wrong and you should feel bad like um shame is so overwhelming as a feeling that Mm. I think yeah when I when I was younger definitely it was like one of those things that Permeates like memories of childhood, right? Mm -hmm. If you feel that kind of shame when you're younger, whether it's from like religious ideals that you've been sort of sold, whether it's from the ways that you interact with people that you're related to or that you love or that you care about, it's so damaging to young people. Yeah. And that Mm -hmm. you internalise so much of it that even when you think you're like, I'm like, no, here I'm living my best gay life. Like I've (laughs) got a pride flag above my bed and I'm like out here with like coloured hair, which is a must, and like doing these things.
2: Yeah. And queer elect over here.
0: <laughs> I, try, I try, but then you, you kind of like sit down or sit down at like 3am and I'll be like oh fuck, Like there's so much in my head that's still so yeah. Yeah. convoluted
2: yeah. yeah. or like I don't belong here yeah. yeah.
0: I mean
1: when I officially, I left the church when I was 21 It's quite um, old
2: to like leave
1: the church I guess Well the thing is as a Catholic, can you ever leave the church? <laughs> yeah, but once I you're baptised Yeah exactly, exactly They've got you take <laughs> no, like, t- no like
2: no Yeah exactly,
1: <laughs> they're holding on to that soul um, but I had um, read that if I wrote to my diocese and I asked to be removed from the roles, then then that I would have a way of, of not... I didn't want to be counted as a mm-hmm. Catholic. I didn't want there to be this number of like, there were this many billion people in mm-hmm. the world who believed this thing. At a moment in time in my life where I was dating a woman who had such horrific um, internalised homophobia, Uh, from a church upbringing. And that's not to say that all Christians or all Catholics have this or um, have an aversion or a hatred Mm -hmm. of people who are gay uh, and queer. But it was ruining her life, and her sort of hold on being alive was very tenuous. And I was like, I'm done. And it was so embedded in me that I went to last confession, Mm -hmm. and I spent 45 minutes confessing everything, because I was like, Mm -hmm. if I'm going to get smote... I'm gonna do it with a clean slate. Yeah. I'll just get it all out. Yeah. Um, and like and it's that thing. It's ridiculous mm. thinking of it. And there's a real hypocrisy in being like, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the church, and I'm leaving the church. Yeah. But I'm still gonna go to confession and make sure that if just in
0: case. Yeah. That mm-hmm. I've covered my bases. Yeah. But that's another like level of internalized shame, I guess. Yeah. Is that you you feel like, oh, it's a very it's such a strong physical and emotional feeling yeah like I had a lot like a lot of issue when I first started dating I guess like my first proper girlfriend and we were like intimate but I couldn't understand why I was so nervous and so like pent up because I was like I want this like why why is why do I not feel comfortable right and like a lot of that is first of all you should like you're nervous the first time you have sex with anyone right, right? and like no one said to me like it's you were nervous with the guys so of course you're nervous with the girl Like don't be silly but also that kind of feeling of um, i've been told that i shouldn't want this and i've been mm-hmm. told that i should be uncomfortable that it'll be weird and just that general anxiety mm-hmm. around i guess and that feeling of shame yeah Which I some mean, obviously, can... there
2: isn't there isn't very good like sex ed for queer people mm-hmm. so it's like what do i even do mm-hmm. how yeah. does it work yeah. <laughs> you don't know how to want it
0: yeah yeah and it's yeah. A whole,
2: that's a whole other type of
0: rubik's cube yeah. i guess so there's um, an amazing book
1: by Gina Roche called queer sex
0: Oh, everyone Mm. should
1: read
0: it. Yeah, she is amazing. Also, good title to the Mm. point. Yeah, says on the turn. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I
2: think I think that the uh, the topic of of shame is quite interesting within queer circles. Um, I read this like academic paper uh, called "What Queer Theory Can Do for Intersex" or "What Can Queer Theory Do for Intersex?" Something like that by Ian Mortland, and uh, one of the things that he discussed in the paper was how the term gay sex is kind of like a juxtaposition of gay being something shameful and sex being something euphoric and i think it's an interesting idea of adding an element of shame into the definition of queerness i think it's really tricky Mm -hmm. in the same way that it's tricky saying that all queer people are like that uh, experiencing uh, discrimination is like a necessary factor of identifying as anything mm-hmm. but um, I still think it's like an interesting thought to play with mm-hmm. and how you know kind of shame is just kind of like embedded mm-hmm. in us and it's almost like an element that we mm-hmm. just cannot escape from but once we're liberated in that shame I think it's mm-hmm. also then so much easier to be liberated in other ways if there's some. I think there's also
1: I mean there's a there's a gender conditioning that you know, girls are not taught to seek pleasure mm-hmm. in a way that boys are taught to seek pleasure um, or that pleasure is okay and I think that it's when there is perhaps an aspect to being a queer woman that will involve a certain amount of social conditioning about what, what you should be I mean like in my first relationships with women it was an eye opener on liberating me for the relationships that I had with men of being like this it what a ridiculous behaviour to do mm. the you know, the batting of the eyelids mm-hmm. or the puppy face. Yeah. So that like I feel like a fucking idiot doing yeah. that to mm. a woman. <laughs> Why do I feel like it's somehow coquettish and sexy when I do it to a man? Yeah. Mm. Um and I think that there's that aspect purely in, in terms of like pleasure seeking of not knowing how to ask for pleasure that is not taught. And then on top of that, then you have in a queer context, you you don't even know what pleasure you're seeking. Yeah. But I think there's also an element of a story around queerness of an expectation of pain and suffering, and mm-hmm. um, that it's part of our journey. Mm-hmm. And I think that we don't allow enough space for the joy
0: yeah. and of having to earn queerness by going through the difficulty yeah. of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that you know we can be accepting and horrified by what lgbtqia people go through in everyday life in the kind of oppression Mm, and rejection mm, in society mm. but also as you say you you can be just as queer and never knowingly have experienced that yeah and Mm. i think that sometimes we put a lot far too much pressure on people to have especially too young to have had like meaningful grown-up experiences like of the world by virtue of a sexuality that you will be exposed to far more that you will grow up faster yeah. that you will you know and I think that there was a, a brilliant essay by um Mos Pepe on a in a tiny letter uh recently where he was writing as a trans man about the whole idea of queerness and transness as something that you're only allowed to like one of the the bits that stood out for me is this idea that you have to say you were born in the wrong body and Mm -hmm. therefore the premise that you start with is one of pain or suffering or othering or wrongness and I think we do that in huge, powerful, and, and, and incredibly problematic way for trans people, but I think in a lot of ways we do that to all queer identities, to some degree of othering, we do it to ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and we expect that it's more... But um, yeah, But, no, I came out from the gym, and um, my flatmate Izzy, who I'm always with, we do everything together, she, she was in the toilet. I don't know why she's taking so long, very long time. Okay, I feel
2: like this whole segment of report um, is, is taking a long time. The <laughs> she took toilet. she took
0: ages. I'm not even kidding. I was like I was waiting outside and I knew that I had to piss. I was like if I don't piss in the next like 2 minutes, I was like shit's going to get real. And you can feel it. You can feel you yeah. can feel the pressure like building. Oh yeah. Um so I was like standing with my legs crossed outside in the hallway like a gimp, like a fucking idiot. And um I knew she wasn't going to be out anytime soon. So um I kind of just like crossed my legs and hoped for the best and then a couple minutes later she kind of emerges and I was like I've got to uncross my legs get into the bathroom get onto the toilet pull my trousers down and then piss and in my head I was like that's the order it has to be in Rosie (laughs) that's the way the actions need to happen otherwise it's all going to go pear shaped Mm -hmm. and um, somewhere from like uncrossing my legs and thinking oh god it's gonna it, like it's coming forth the dams are being broken the gates are open i was like i gotta get got to get my trousers down get it on the toilet and i just i skipped so many steps that it ended up kind of like half sat on the toilet just urinating into my own trousers
2: but like that's totally fine because first of all you were in a toilet you were not like on your couch or yeah like but i shouldn't have to feel the
0: shame where i had to like strip off my like wet clothes yeah. and then I had to like get in a cold shower and I walked into the, the kitchen afterwards I looked at Izzy and she looked at me and I knew that she knew what happened. Like I knew that she knew that like I was a 21 year old woman who just had to shower piss off my own thighs. Like it shouldn't be that way. Right, we are back. Um, another question for you. Why do you feel activism is important in this space, more specifically kind of within a bookshop? Um, I think there
1: are a few different aspects to that. As Lighthouse is a bookshop that is an activist space, which I do think we are. um, And I think uh, fundamental to what we do is we sell books and we sell books because we think genuinely that they can help and play an important part in making the world a better place. And it can make the world a better place by either giving you as a person... Uh, a sense of purpose, um, a sense of escape, uh, a place of safety when the world is utterly shite and you need to reboot. And, you know, as Audrey Lord says, like self-care is political and, and it's important that we give ourselves these spaces to have pleasure and enjoyment and cultural fulfillment and creativity. And in that way, there is something political simply in the act of reading and drawing pleasure from it and i think especially if it means that you are imbibing the voices of other people and other you know there's there's power in seeing yourself in literature but i think all of the scientific data shows that reading increases empathy and if we have a greater capacity to empathize we empower ourselves to react and act when we see others in pain Mm -hmm. but then you have to act in some way so i think one reading the books and and having a space where you can discover other voices empowers you to engage and Mm -hmm. i think we provide a sort of interface for that because activist groups and communities are very insular and they tend to replicate and you know you end up in a group where everyone kind of looks like you and thinks like you or has the same you know, socio-economic background as you. And I think that we provide a sort of leveling space where people can interact with and bump into on the shelves and in person people who aren't just that reflection of themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's how we build stronger movements. It's when somebody who is working on anti-racist action and decolonizing um, spaces bumps into a student who is angry at their professor for something that they're learning or not learning and then you have a climate activist who's in the same space who's like fuck maybe I really need to look at the institutional racism that I'm replicating within this movement because everyone who's in all my meetings is white and middle class and I think that that's what we can do as a space Mm, and that's what we do as an activist space is we allow these ideas to exist physically to be found Physically, and then for people to then mix and merge and bump off each other, mm. and in a space that is public.
2: This is when you do your mic drop. <laughs> that was a very powerful answer. As I say, and you have a dog.
0: Thank you so much for saying all of that. It's really it brings up so many things, and that's the thing I think you can have a podcast and when you're speaking to someone really plugged in and really interesting like yourself, it could be easy to go on for hours. No. But we will end. Um, we end each episode. So far there have only been two, but it's, <laughs> we, still kept, we still kept it going. Um with a, a plus and a plug. So a positive thing and then a plug. Um I'll go I'll go first. Um okay. I my plus is the uh, exhibit, the now exhibit at the Scottish Modern Art Gallery. Um, that I went to DNC today, which was excellent, and I loved it, and I love going to see art because I feel sophisticated mm, and yeah. intelligent, but I also, it was free, so. Mm. Uh, and my plug at the moment um, is actually, just literally go outside, like I just went outside today. I'm plugging the outside, the outdoors, um, and it was really nice <laughs> to <Yeah>. do that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess, for me, my my plus for the week would be probably this weekend. It's been a really lovely, really sweet weekend um, that I've just spent with like, some lovely people, uh, saw a good film, which is very relaxing. And honestly, just like remember to take time for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, self-care can be political um, or is political, so remember to do that. And then my plug would be my most recent tattoo artist, mm-hmm. artist, singular. Um, so her pronouns are she, her, and she, her name is Aileen, I believe. I think. Yeah. Um, she works at that mm-hmm. of Iniquity Tattoo. That of Iniquity. Iniquity. Mm-hmm. That's what it's. That's what it's called. Perfect. Brilliant. We. I will definitely put her in the description, uh, for this. For this episode. So. Yeah, she's great.
0: Optional yeah. additional plug is STEM toys. Which oh yes. <laughs> I have been loving this. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Plugging STEM toys.
2: Yeah, like honestly, always have them in, like in your office and yeah. for just like for people if you if you if you ever have other people in your office or even for yourself.
0: Yeah. So over to you.
1: So, uh, plus a really lovely, one of our regulars who we see all the time sent um, a wee message on Instagram the other day just saying that they'd had some some shitty news and they came here and it made all the difference and yeah. that's what got them out of the house that day. Mm. Um, uh-huh. And I think sometimes we lose track as booksellers and as sort of lighthouse keepers of, of why we do it. And it's just Really nice to hear someone Very say it mattered mm. and it made a difference. Because it might not make a difference every day, but on that day it made a difference that we were here. So that yeah. was great. Um I was gonna plug the book fringe, um, but actually I'm gonna plug something else. Uh, there is an amazing local um filmmaker called Paul Sung, uh spelt SNG, who is crowdfunding at the moment for a film. He's Mm. making a film about Edinburgh's homeless canine owners and the whole community of homeless people in Edinburgh. I'm already obsessed. (laughs) It's amazing and um, if you just look up um, Paul Song um, on Twitter uh, he's got lots of stuff about the crowdfunder and they're only about halfway there but if they make another third people are matching donations. Uh, He's made some amazing films about working class people. Um, he did Invisible Britain, which was at the film House. He's won lots of awards. He's a very wonderful human, and this is going to be an amazing
2: film. That sounds amazing. If it can get made. Yeah. Well, yeah. I
0: mean. Okay, so we will include all of the info yeah. in the description. Well, you. So people Ed can check it all out. And honestly, thank you so so much for taking the time to sit and chat with us. And it's been really, very welcome. Yeah, it's been it's been really helpful and really, I guess, enlightening. Yeah,
2: as our lighthouse shall do. (laughs) Oh, ha
0: ha (laughs) (laughs) Um, But get yourselves down to Lighthouse Books and just come in and
2: say hello. Yes. And actually visit, see the dog, get some toys, get some get some awesome books, get educated, get weird <laughs> i <go> <laughs>